KZSU Stanford. From the studios of KZSU at Stanford University, this is What Would Your Mother Say? Welcome to the show. I'm Susan Morris. On tonight's show, the topic is connections, how people come together. We're going to take a look at how women helping infertile couples make babies for big bucks, and then how couples are hooking up by playing online games. And finally, how others are coming together, the more traditional way to find a mate. Let me introduce everyone at the table, Brant and Jessica, our student contingent, and Barbara, the other mom. Thanks for having me. On today's show, you and I are representing the parental view. I don't want to say the old-timers view. (laughs) But you could. I could. (laughs) You and I get to talk to these students about subjects that their own parents may avoid or are afraid to discuss. Paying off student loans, struggling to get by on a student stipend, there are lots of reasons why young women today could use more money. From recent ads in the Stanford Daily, it looks like one of the most lucrative jobs for young women right now is to become an egg donor. Here's what the ad says. Preferred donor will meet the following criteria, height approximately 5 foot 9 or taller, Caucasian, SAT scores around 1275, Athletic compensation, $80,000, paid to you and or your charity of your choice. All related expenses will be paid in addition to your compensation. That's a huge amount of money for what appears to be a pretty simple thing to do. In fact, on the surface, it looks pretty tempting, wouldn't you say, Jessica? I wouldn't tempt me. I wouldn't do it. I, I, I mean, looking at that ad, that doesn't make me want to do it at all. I think that, that I, knowing a little bit as I do about the medical procedures involved, it's, that's really scary. It's like having someone pay you to chop your arm off. Or well, describe the medical procedure. Well, as far as I understand it, they give you special drugs that make you more fertile. They make your eggs, make you make more eggs, and then they do surgery and they extract the eggs out of you. And that can have, I mean, I've read that there can be big problems with fertility from that point forward, or there can be, or you can just have complications. It's like, this is a huge risk. It's just not worth it. Can I ask me anyway? Would you feel any differently, Jessica, if you were five foot nine? (laughs) (laughs) This is radio. Nobody knows that I'm not five foot nine. (laughs) That's right. It sounds like they're willing to pay a lot of money to get their next volleyball champion in there if they want a specific height. That's what always amazes me about these ads is the... Race specifications. I mean, I guess I could understand you want a kid that that looks like you, but I mean, how specific do you really have to be? They want the SAT scores above a fourteen hundred fifty. Like, you know, I don't know. That's it, not my objection to it, it at all. Is it like, going to matter? <laughs> I mean, I can see the point of view of the of the parents or the the mother that wants to have a baby and is, has a lot of money and is willing to pay for exactly what she wants. But what I can't see the point of view is the people my age that are going to be donating the eggs. Like, they would have to pay me. I'd have to be set for life, basically. Like, they would have to pay me enough money where I would never have to work again so that if I had complications, I could just nurse myself for the rest of my life on the money they gave me. But let me just jump in here a minute. If you were loaded with student loans, and this Mm -hmm. could cut that burden in half or take it away completely, I can imagine that it would be unbelievably compelling for basically 10 days of slight discomfort. But there are dangers. There are risks. Maybe I'm too risk averse or something, but why not just sell your soul into investment banking instead? (laughs) There there are, not only do you get more eggs fertilized, but also you, it, it um, manipulates your period so that it's in conjunction or it's the same as the 
woman who will be getting your eggs. Yeah, so, that's just it's it's just too dangerous. But I, I think, think I think Barbara's raised an interesting point about eighty thousand dollars is a lot of money for a twenty year old person. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It just you know depends on their own. Would you tell your situation. girlfriend to do that if your girlfriend was five nine and <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if she is, but you know, and well, had the SAT scores and the you know, I, I don't think it's any of my decision or it would be any of my choice. But she asks you. She says to you, like, I'm considering doing this. I have all these loans. Like, what would you? say right i mean i i'd be fine with it you know she was fine with that. i don't see any problem with it uh you know from a, a moral or ethical standpoint but what about from a practical standpoint well if she understands the risks involved and is fully informed and you know is willing i don't see why not uh, uh, from my I, point of view it kind of freaks me out that there are these babies running around whose parents are unknown so to speak. Well, I mean, there's I all kinds of adopted children. Yeah, that doesn't bother me. I don't know. Maybe that's, is that generation Is this thing, a maybe? generation thing? Because it does, it concerns me a little bit. Well, I have a certain sympathy for this procedure in as much as a very close friend of mine had a sperm donor uh, when she and her husband couldn't conceive. And this is only the flip side of that. I mean, I think sperm donation is easier. It's kind of I think yeah. I don't want to use the expression whack job, but it's quite quick. Okay. <laughs> and it doesn't involve all these drugs and whatnot. If I were to do this, I would want a lot of money. It's like saying it's okay for people to be prostitutes, but only if they don't get paid very much. Like if you're going to be a prostitute, you should get paid a lot because what you're selling is of great value. And I think that's true with this. Like in a way, I mean, it's not exactly prostitution. I mean, you're selling your, your fertility rather than your sexuality, but still you should be paid a lot to give up something of that. Value. But actually, the donor is not giving up anything. Uh, it's not. All right, let's assume that it works correctly, and medic and the medical procedures are reasonably safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, she can conceive in the future and have her own family and all that stuff. I mean, right, can't you see it from an altruistic standpoint that a couple that really can't conceive needs an egg? And oh let's yeah, face it, no, we I, go to the I pound think... and we're really fussy about the dog we adopt. Should we be less fussy about the child we You create? know, I agree with you about that part of it. Like, I agree. I can see the, the couple's point of view. I can see that they really want to have a child and they want a child that looks like them or is of the same, you know, mental capacity that they have and all that stuff. I can really see their point of view. But I just think there should be less supply. Like, I can see why there's demand. Mm-hmm. I just don't see why there's so much supply. Like, I would never... Well, I mean, obviously there's not because they're having to pay eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. True. I mean, that's, and I think there's good reason for that. a huge amount. And, I mean, look at the difference with sperm donation. What's the, the, the going rate on that? Like $500 each time? Uh, is that right? No, it's like 900 a month. If you if you do it like three times a week every week, so like, that's for twelve donations, you only get nine hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. That's a lot, actually, if you think about what you have to do to get it. Does it matter? <laughs> so, I mean, what, what, what that says to me then is the the biggest issue for people is not that their genetic material is going into some random right. sperm, but just the problem with the surgical risks and right. things like that because of the vast difference in price. It bothers me f- the, about the um, the egg going out to. But why? Like that's something I just don't understand at all. Why? I can't quite put my finger I on mean, why it, why I it think bothers this me. might be a generational thing, Susan, in the sense that after you breed, I think you feel more possessive and protective about your genetic material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you have, you know, it, it's easy to be um, not emotional about it, I think, before you give birth. Yeah. It's easier anyway. I think you're right. that it, it, and it, What about the, the stories that you hear about sperms and 
eggs being um, lost at by, at these banks, and so you end up. I mean, there was there was a a Swedish couple, white, and they had twins, and one was black and African American, and another was white because the the sperm banker they got mixed up. They got mixed up. I, well, I, see, that's like neg- I mean, there's all kinds of negligent babies get mixed up at the hospital too that were naturally conceived, naturally born. They mix up the babies. That's like malpractice more than an ethical issue about egg donation. I you're, think. you're right. Well, we have a call. Uh, it's Latoya. Uh, hi, what's your question? Egg donors and sperm donors actually really bother me, and it's not because I have a problem morally or ethically or financially with the whole situation. I just don't understand why any couple that couldn't conceive wouldn't adopt. And it drives me bonkers that we feel the need to create more children artificially when there are so many out there that need a loving family, that need parents. I know. I think... Basically, I hate to say this, but a, a certain portion of these children that are up for adoption have big problems. Well, the other thing is adoption isn't all that easy. Uh, I mean, unless you're willing to go for an older child or um, out of your child. race or international well, or something like that. Easy, but if we're talking about not being easy, let's talk about this type of fertilization. I think it has something like less than 40% success rate. To when you give an egg donor to begin with. So I, I don't disagree with Latoya. I, I, I really agree with you. I mean, I think adoption is a better option, but I really don't understand why adoption laws are so difficult. Why don't they make it really easy to adopt a child when there's so many children that need to be adopted? Why? I mean, I like my mom how, has friends. How are that, they? How are the adoption laws difficult? I hadn't well, realized that my they, my mom has some has some friends that like tried to adopt a child and they had to go through. They had to have like ten visits from different people. They had to have like all their income tax tax returns for the past 10 years. They had to have psychological evaluations themselves and all this stuff. And like, it costs like $20,000, $30,000 just to adopt a child. So like, that Boy, isn't that I much of a premium that's, over that. That's smart, it's though. You want to make sure these, you know, these people are going to be fit parents. Yeah, but it, your alternative for that child is to be not adopted, which is much, much worse. I mean, they're in an orphanage or foster care and they're being shuttled around from family to family. Like, if you make adoption easier, then... Then but I don't think so many families are willing to adopt the older children. That's well, the maybe hassle. they get older because no one's willing to go through this whole process. Mm. To, so I think healthy infants still go rather rapidly. But now that you know, if we've had abortion on demand for is it thirty years or twenty five, whatever the number is, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's quite as easy. I know my sister and her husband were trying to adopt forever and yeah. eventually went to China. Oh, and then they, they recently banned international adoptions from a lot of countries, Romania. Well, part, of that countries. Ha- part of that has to do with the, the countries themselves. China yeah. used to make it really easy for people to adopt from them, and then they started to crack down on it. That's right. Yeah. So it wasn't That's something else I don't understand. Thank you for your call. Yeah. Thank you. I've had um, I've heard stories of of children coming from outside the United States and having severe problems, learning disabilities, emotional problems that. Um, that the adopting parents were not told about. So it's very oh. risky. Uh, you haven't heard about that? Well, no, what I've heard is from the other end. They feel like the children, the mothers in those countries are poor and they're being exploited in the same way that they feel like oh. these girls are being exploited for selling their eggs. But I can see it's a much more desperate Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can. I think that's um. You already have this child that exists. You can't care for it. It just makes a lot more sense to adopt it than it does to make children. Do I, you I, think I, these I, women I, are being exploited? The pe- people who are getting paid. Yeah. For that? No, absolutely not. I mean, as long as they're. I mean, I'm not. I'm not 
up to speed on the particular like uh, information that they have to have, but I assume it's pretty reasonable that they have to be informed of the risk and you know what the process is like, isn't that it's a surgical procedure, and as long as they're all informed, that's great, that's fine. Well, back to the question of engineering your offspring. Um, you know, I look around us, and almost everybody of middle age or older is wearing glasses now. You know, if we could kind of correct genetics, what we'd probably do is make sure that those of us that can't see can't breed. I mean, you'd change well, the course of maybe just make it so everyone can see. Here's an email that's just arrived from Becca. I don't understand this moral indignation about buying eggs with a view toward certain qualities. White people don't buy eggs or sperm, for that matter, from blacks or Asians and vice versa. It's not because they're prejudiced. It's because they want the baby to look like them. It's the same thing with intelligence or athletic skill. They want a baby like the one they would have created themselves biologically. Why would anyone leave the details to chance if they don't have to? Where you get to make a choice, why wouldn't you choose the best of all the alternatives? Here, here. In, well, in a, true, that in a true colorblind and race-blind society, it wouldn't matter what kind, of, what the race of your child was, right? I mean, that's the ideal. What if they are prejudiced? Like, well, let me just play complete devil's advocate. What if they're completely racist and they say, you know what, I want white children because I like them better? Right, and that would bug That's me. their right, isn't it? Like, it's their own child that they're going to spend eight... I mean, I don't agree with them, but let's just say they're going to spend 18 years raising this child loving this child, caring for this child, sacrificing for this child, shouldn't, I mean, whatever wacky preference they have, shouldn't that, shouldn't they be allowed to? We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're veering but, toward the politically un- incorrect uh, topics, but... Yeah, um, I mean, I just don't uh, feel like I have to feel like that's perfectly fine. Well, I don't agree. I'm them. not saying well, I would do that. that. I'm not saying I have that preference. I'm not sure I would pay $80,000 for a kid who didn't look at all like me or my husband. I mean... I mean, adopt then. Right, exactly. Back to the the difference between adoption and this seems to really, uh, the crux of it is on the value of the pregnancy, right? I mean, it seems like that's (laughs) That's a a lot of the reason why they want to go through this rather than adoption is because the, you know, the couple has some value in going through an actual, you know, I mean, natural is not really the right word, but pregnancy. So there's some value in that. That's a good point. Yeah, there is value to that. But I also think the imperative, well, the imperative to breed is huge. And it, I think it, that, that comes to you before the imperative to raise a child. And so if you can have half a genetic child and with an egg donor, I think that's very tempting to many couples. Are you thinking that the wife is going to carry this egg? I mean, yeah, right. That, oh, isn't well, that the idea? Well, guess what? Sometimes hmm. someone else... They get the egg from someone else, and um, see. Then, I, I then think maybe it's a generation thing. I'm not carries. It. I'm not squicked out by that at all. Like that doesn't well, bother me. I don't. Well, I, I, we have friends whose um, daughter uh, is desperate to have a baby after several years of marriage, and I think this is wonderful. But it does. There are issues and questions that that come to my mind. I want to get more back to the controversial point of what if someone wants something in a child that's not harmful to the child. It's not like they wanted, you know, a child that has no legs or something. They want a child that, something for the child that isn't harmful, but is, let's say, an irrational preference. They want a white child. Let's say they're black and they want a white child because they think white people are better. I don't know. Like, whatever. I mean, I don't know. Like, some preference that isn't reasonable or isn't, you know, based on something the rest of us can understand. Do you think they should be able to do that? I do. I mean, I I guess. I mean, why not? If they're expressing a preference for that, I mean, I just have a problem with designer babies. Does I it guess. sound like Doesn't the master race back yeah, to the it's Nazis? All, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, not just the Nazis, but back to you know Gattaca and you know picking qualities in your child and 
uh, that that's unsettling. I mean, whether you know the government or whoever should force them to not have that choice is a different issue. You know, interestingly, I am also kind of spooked about what Jessica just said, and it um, it reminds me of something my daughter's principal, high school principal, said. He said, "I want you to come to school with some color of hair that God gave." people <laughs> and you know if god couldn't give a white couple a black baby right. or a black couple a white baby maybe right. there is something that's kind of out of order with the universe <laughs> oh gosh well we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to be talking about connecting on the internet through online dating <laughs> What Would Your Mother Say? Coming to you live from the studios of KZSU at Stanford University. I'm Susan Morris. I'm in here in the studios with my panel of students, Brent and Jessica. Hi, Susan. Glad to be here. And Barbara, another mother. Hi, Susan. Today we're having a roundtable discussion, and we're going to be shifting our attention now to talk about how couples are connecting online anonymously. Millions of Americans are going online to meet prospective mates via eHarmony.com, Match.com. There are groups for Jews, Catholics, Democrats, even Republicans. <laughs> you name it, you can find it. What Now, what is the beauty of meeting someone online? I, I think there are lots. Like, you, you don't see the warts? <laughs> <laughs> Unless they put pictures of their warts. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think they put up those pictures. Yes. Well, I think the beauty of it is you have access to a much larger pool. I mean, that's presumably the beauty of it. Right. And if you're stuck in a job where you don't meet a lot of people, it's great. A lot of, I mean, school teachers, how, you know, how do they meet a lot of young, you know, eligible men? I'm thinking of that job in particular, but there are many more. Well, I think another point, too, is that you meet people's minds before you meet their bodies, which I think is really important. If you just go out to a bar or you're sitting in a cafe or something, you see someone's looks, but you don't see their thoughts. And then online, you see their thoughts and and their, and some vague conception of their looks before you actually see their body. I, I think it's a totally riskless uh, connection, too. You can approach someone, uh, you know, via email, and if you are rejected, there's, I mean, no feeling. It's completely anonymous. You never even really met this person. So it's a lot easier to approach all kinds of people. You know, I don't know if it's really riskless, though, in the sense that um, you're... J- once you advertise that you're available for romance to the broad population, who knows what's going to crawl out from under the rocks? Yeah, but they're so easy to reject. Like if someone crawls out from under the rocks, you just 
don't answer? Or you just block them? Or you just well, I, I guess I was uh, answering from the kind of pursuing perspective rather than you know getting pursued. So I understand the risks of like you know meeting some crazy psycho stalker. But like you know you see someone you know that you might be interested in online. How easy is it to just send an email? Now you guys are way ahead of. We older folks, because you've got Facebook and all of that stuff. But um, wouldn't you be embarrassed if someone you cared about saw you advertising online for love? Hey, I want to ask you guys Absolutely. about that. Absolutely, <laughs> that'd be incredibly embarrassing. I mean, I mean really? humiliating. There, there's a whole stig. I think there's a whole stigma attached Why? to online okay, dating. Okay, I don't understand yeah. this, you guys, because I, I totally disagree. That why? Imagine like, me in a big eight by ten saying, "I'm looking for a boyfriend." <laughs> Does it make more sense to you now? No, I don't think there's anything well, wrong with that. Aren't you, in fact, looking for a boyfriend? I mean, if you are, aren't you, in fact, looking for a boyfriend? What's wrong? It's like saying I'm looking for a new couch or something. I like, think people are embarrassed, though. Uh, they don't want... Do you think this is a generational thing? Like that? Maybe. Well, wait a, a minute. Brand's no, saying I mean, he gets it. Yeah, there's, okay. there's definitely a I mean, I get it. Like, I people. empathize and I understand it, but I don't feel that way at all. Well, but have you done it? Yeah. Oh, you no, have? You okay. Have. All right. Okay, what's happened? Well, I've just met a lot of interesting people. I met them through <laughs> Facebook. I've been like randomly asked out across Facebook. I've contacted people through Facebook. I haven't asked anyone out, but I've, you know, said, you know, oh, hi, we have friends in common. Or, oh, hi, I read this interest of yours. It looked interesting to me. You know, I've done I- online dating things. Yeah. It's like Facebook people. carries a lot of legitimacy. Have mm-hmm. you gone? Can I ask you if you've done anything like Yahoo Personals or um, Match.com? Yes, you have. I have actually. Oh, good. And, yeah, I. Yeah. I don't know. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's like, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. But I, I think uh, now I want to create. I want to draw this scenario for you. This okay. is a true story. Uh, someone met this guy on Match.com, and he said his name was um, Robert White, Robert Johnson, whatever, and so. That was fine. They got along very well. And then the woman called the guy at work, and he answered the phone with a completely different name. And they have subsequently gotten married. And when telling the story, my friend uh-huh. said, when my friend heard this story, she said to the woman, aren't, aren't you a little uncomfortable that you may find out some other things? Like, And yeah. she said, well, we've been married nine months, and I haven't found out anything yet. So, But how wow. would you feel? I mean, do people lie or, or tell their... Wow, I, that would bother me because that's just, yeah. Well, I think they do lie. Uh, some women I know have lied about their age for sure. And a friend of mine who's had some success dating online, I mean, this guy who's very fond of her just said, I want to be straight with you because it wasn't in his profile. I've been to prison twice. <laughs> wow. Twice. Most recently for 10 years. How do you like that? Now, what tell- was he in prison for? <laughs> That's amazing. What a story. Yeah, it's creepy. What What did, what did uh, your friend do? Shockingly, well, she had, and if she's listening, I'm so embarrassed that I'll have to apologize later. Um, you know, she had made some investment. She had met him. She had gone out with him. She found him courteous and respectful and kind and, and good thoughtful. Good looking. And- good enough looking uh-huh. and all of that stuff. So she really struggled with it until he revealed something about his crime and his prison sentence. <laughs> I murdered the last spoke. girl I dated online. <laughs> and she realized, I can't bring this guy around I know. to meet I, my friends. Well, can you imagine like when your friends say, oh, where did you meet? What's your background? Yeah. Uh, well, San Quentin for, you know. Right. Because this is a big part now. He's writing a book about it and all that stuff. So it's not nothing that's going to be secret. 
Oh, wow. Okay, so, that I think people, me. obviously, when we meet people, we always put on our best face. Yeah, and, right. you know, I don't know where you cross the line between best face and big fat lie. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, with online dating, too, there's no filter. Like, with you and the people you've met and your friends and then fair friends of friends, there's, you know, certain filters that people could pass through before you actually meet them. So they have to reach some kind of, you know, standard or quality You know, that's a, that's a good point. Like, a lot of the people I've dated online, it turns out, have been, like, within one, two to three to four degrees of people I know, just because I tend to like the same type of guy. So they tend to be, like, they all seem to know someone randomly. Right. You're not just going out with an, a random person who yeah. could be dangerous. And, and even Stanford is its own, you know, filtering system, I guess. So, yeah. like, you know, meaning going online to the Facebook and looking up other Stanford mm-hmm. students, you know, I, I'm a little bit more comfortable with than posting it on the random internet. You also have more to talk about, I guess. Like, you can bring up the Stanford thing and say, oh, you're in that club or whatever. Well, yeah. what, what I What makes me uncomfortable is seeing my friends go through this rejection thing. It reminds me of dancing school when no one asked you to dance. Now, yeah. your friends who are trying to date online? Yes, yes. And they... they go out and this and that and the guy doesn't call back and oh and that's just like real life that just happens but i've got to say the part of um, online dating that i find more difficult is that uh, people now feel like they can present a grocery list of qualities they want and if you don't really meet all of them you're out out on your ear and sometimes if you meet someone face to face it takes a little longer to reveal that oh this person doesn't sail i can't possibly marry them but in that regard um my friend who did have the good success with online dating sent me a referral from some it was a guy that lived in my neighborhood she said well you get one free email before you even sign up why don't you email this guy and so i see this old guy with big yellow aviator glasses and a and um, a Mexican wedding shirt and, you know, <laughs> leaning against, I don't know what, and he writes down all his interests, me, 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 and then at the end of it says, you know, for parody's sake, anyone that responds to this ad should be financially independent. Yeah. And I thought, I'll be doggone. You have, to, you have to go out with this old guy with old-fashioned glasses and you still have to be rich. <laughs> oh, boy. I wonder how many responses he gets. Oh. Zero. Well, you know. Never know. You, you never know. Oh, gosh. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at how couples are hooking up while playing online games. My guest has done extensive research on the subject and will tell us how it works and why some people have an easier time finding true love on the Internet than in the real world. Welcome back to What Would Your Mother Say? Coming to you live from the studios of KZSU at Stanford University. I'm Susan Morris. I'm in the studios with my panel of students, Brent and Jessica, and Francis has just joined us. Hi, Susan. Hi, it's good to have you here. Thank you. And Barbara, another mother. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is connections, how people are connecting up with each other. An increasingly popular way of hooking up and finding your true love is by playing online games. The names of some of them may be familiar to you, City of Heroes, Anarchy Online, and EverQuest 2. Players are having success meeting prospective mates by turning on their computer, signing on to their favorite online game, and flirting away with the different players out there. My guest, Nick Yee, is a PhD PhD student in the Department of Communications at Stanford who studies online games. Hi, Nick. Welcome to What Would Your Mother Say? Hi, Susan. Uh, Tell us about your survey of game players. I started serving online uh, game players about six years ago, so over the past six years, I've surveyed uh, over 40,000 online game players, and specifically uh, gamers, as you said, from massively multiplayer online games like City of Heroes and World of Warcraft. 
What kind of questions did you ask in your survey? Wow, all sorts. So I started more with uh, demographic questions and then some personality, and then moved on to questions like, you know, have you ever fallen in love online? Do you think you're addicted to these online games? Um, and so forth. Well, tell me, what were some of the surprising answers? Uh, <laughs> you've told me that some people play these online games as much as 20 hours a week? That's actually the average that I find on my survey. So, uh, you know, just several numbers. So the average age is around 26, so not, uh, you know, not a predominantly teenage crowd. You know, it's only about 25% of the players are teenagers. So most of these players work full-time, uh, or, you know, about 30% of them have, are, are married. And, you know, on average, they spend 20 hours a week in these online environments. Now, Nick, doesn't that make you wonder how well they're working on their jobs? <laughs> well, I mean, 20 hours sounds like a lot until you remind people that the average American watches 28 hours of TV a week. Okay, fair, fair enough. <laughs> so now tell me, explain the games. I, I don't understand. You were quoted in the Wall Street Journal this week as saying that these games shed light on players' personalities and that... You can actually find out a lot about people by the way they play. Now, explain that to me and to the listeners out there who really don't know anything about these yeah. games. So in a lot of these games, uh, what, just in a nutshell, you're creating um, a character, um, typically of a fantasy, medieval, Tolkien-esque uh, genre, and you, you're immersed in this large world online with thousands of other players in real time who you interact with, collaborate with, chat with, to achieve in-game goals, whether that's um, uh, slaying dragons or uh, stealing grapes of the local vineyard. You know, so there are a variety of things that you do in these worlds. And for a lot of players, um, because they're so emotionally invested and because um, so many of the things that you do in these worlds are about teamwork and trusting each other, it becomes like a bonding experience. So they feel like they can trust the players who have demonstrated their trustworthiness in these games. Wow. And But tell me, you, you and I have talked about how y- you've said that, that these games can be more revealing or put people mm-hmm. in yep. situations that re- reveal things more quickly than in real the real world. I, I have troubles with this. I mean, you're playing a game, for God's yeah. sakes. I mean, what is a game versus, you know, someone actually interacting with you? Uh, standing up for you in right. real life, or you know, so in a lot of these games, um, again, these players are play for twenty hours a week. They're heavily emotionally invested, and there are a lot of situations where you have to work with a group. And you know, for example, um, you're in a large fight, and everyone um, is being wounded, and people are going to start dying uh, in the game. And you you can watch how other players in your group react. You know, do they run away? Do they stand help? And for a lot of players, they read into those decisions, you know, that those are very character-revealing moments. And, of course, you know, virtual death is nothing like real-life death. Um, But what happens is that for a lot of players, um, you know, so a lot of our friends in real life, we really don't know if we can trust them until a crisis occurs in real life. And that, for the most part, it doesn't happen to many of us because the real world is so rubber-padded. A lot of things we can do on our own or they're easy to solve. Um, in the virtual world, what happens is they're engineered for, for being full of crisis. So uh, for a lot of these players, it's the other way around. It's not that they pick friends and make friends, and then you know, a year or two later they, they figure out whether they can trust this friend when a crisis comes up, but it's the other way around in the online game is that 
every day they meet people in crisis-filled environments, and they can pick to make friends with the people who have demonstrated their trustworthiness. So you know, there's a little of that making friends in reverse. So it's, it's not that you're, you've, you're making casual acquaintances, and then, you know, you wait and see whether you can trust them, but, you know, it's the other way around almost, that you... You you meet someone who's demonstrated their trustworthiness, and then you want to. You, then you say to yourself, you know, I think I want to know this person a little bit more. Do well, have any of the people that you've talked to or surveyed actually married anybody that they've met through these games? Um, yeah, whether that's physically dated or you know married, of course, to a much lower percentage. You know, there are actually um, a lot of players have done that. You know, from the online games. And it really, I wonder how. I do you, no, of course I, I don't, your survey doesn't include this. I wonder how long the relationships or the marriages yeah, last. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, because it. I don't know, Nick. What's your impression? I mean, presumably you play these games. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you agree with all of this? I mean, you're. <laughs> Wait, which part of it? Sorry. Well, that you can really tell something about a person by how they play a game. I mean, because I I think if I wanted to impress somebody, I could do anything in a game. I think for a lot of. The, um, there's several things. So for a lot of these game players, they tend to, for, especially for the ones who have had relationships online, they tend to say that they feel that it's the real-life relationship. In real life, when you meet people, that it's harder to read them because it's so easy to put on makeup, to put on you know clean clothes, and to just fake a personality in that initial courting period. In a way for them, it's it's not that, that, you know, people are superficial in real life as well, and that a lot of times it's hard to read a person in real life. I think for them, you know, what's interesting about the online environment is, is you get to know a person by their actions and by their decisions rather than how they look, whereas it typically tends to be the other way in real life, that you really know a person from the outside in. You know, you, you, you know how they look, how they dress, but less about, you know, you know, a lot of times I think these players say to themselves, you know, I wish I could test my friends and see who I could trust. I wish I could test this guy that I'm dating. You know, how would he react in a crisis? You know, what, you know, if I put him in a stressful situation, how might he react? And, you know, those are very revealing and important kinds of things. You know, so I think for a lot of players when they're in these environments, that's why they think it's more character revealing. Mm-hmm. Nick, uh, what is the um, theory that you're in the process of proving? Can you tell us? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, when you write a thesis or when you start, you usually have a, a, a theme or a theory. That, I mean, that in, in, you know made you go toward that subject. Oh, um, I think in this one I was a little more open-ended. I think I was interested in just looking in at like what you know what percentage of people have had these relationships and what do they say. And I think what was interesting. I mean, of course, they tend to have a more positive view of it. Um, but what was interesting is the you know the reasons they gave. And I think for me personally, what's interesting is. Um, that a lot of times we think that online relationships are a little bit more superficial, but I think in certain kinds of environments, of course not all online environments, that the opposite can happen and that sometimes we may be able to see more character-revealing things in certain environments than in real life. Good. I am talking to Nick Yee, a Stanford Ph.D. student who is studying online games. Nick, I'm going to turn it over to, I'm going to turn to my panel and sure. see who has some questions. Uh, Francis. Yeah, Nick, I was curious to know if, if this was inspired from personal experience by any chance. No, actually, not the online games bit, actually. You know, I've, um, I think, I forget who else on, on the show just a bit ago. You know, I've tried dating on sites like Match.com and so forth, but never in an online game. I think part of the reason is because I 
I'm a soloer in in these online games, so I because of my my work schedule, it's hard for me to find time to group up with other players. So I don't have a lot of social interaction time in these games. So I prefer to play alone. That's probably one of the main reasons why. Uh, Nick, hi. Um, it sounds like a lot of the games that you're talking about are specifically like online role playing games, Correct. as opposed right. to MMORPGs. Yep. Yeah. Do you think that that might have something to do with the relationships that are built, the type of game that they're playing? Um, it does in an interesting way that a lot of people don't think about. So, I think role playing games as a specific game genre attract a specific kind of person. It's almost like going to a local meeting of French wines. You know, so. In a way, these players are already pre-selected for compatibility. You know, so a lot of times people talk on the internet that it's like finding a needle in the haystack. You know, I would almost say that in, in, when you get into environments like an MMORPG where it's so specific kind of activity, you know, uh, medieval fantasy character long-term, you know, uh, achievement, that you've already kind of pre-selected the kind of people in these environments. Actually, um, my- there's, you know, there's part of that going on too. My my question kind of follows up on that one. I'm I'm wondering if you've heard of people that will only date people through online games. Whereas that I haven't heard. So the interesting thing is, so when I actually uh, ask these players who physically dated somebody they met online to talk about the experience, almost all of them um, talk about it in a way that they they weren't purposely looking for a relationship, but that it was something that just happened. You know, they they met someone who they kept uh, in touch with, kept grouping with. And then they develop romantic feelings for them. But what was it wasn't something that they deliberately set out to do when they started playing the game. Can I ask Nick if the average time is twenty hours per week? Some yeah. people must be spending lots more. Did anyone right. fess up to being addicted? Yeah. So <laughs> when you ask them point blank, would you consider yourself addicted? You know, in my sample of three thousand respondents, fifty percent of them said yes. No kidding. Wow. Well, yeah. That re- well, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most was the high percentage given the built-in social desirability bias into that question. That, you know, in, in real life, if I ask you whether you're addicted to anything, I mean, it, it instantly sets up your guard and you're more likely to say no. So I think what surprised me the most was the high percentage given the bias in that question. Okay. You mean the, the high percentage that admitted to being, Correct. To yeah. being addicted to it? Correct. Well. If they're saying they're spending more than 20 hours a week, Nick, they'd be hard-pressed to say they weren't addicted, wouldn't they? Um, I, I, I have a prejudice here. I do things. <laughs> you, know, again, you know, again, you know, I point back to TV. I think we're, we're living at a time where it's hard to talk about the Internet and online games without the paranoia that surrounds it right now in our culture. And, you know, again, you know, we, we don't care or talk about the TV the way we did 10 years ago. We're not paranoid about TV even though, by and large, you know, more people watch TV than they do play online games. Yeah, and I, I don't want to tell you how many hours I spend <laughs> on the Internet looking up the most random, bizarre things. Does you it make any sense to go into these games if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan? It's, it's really tough, you know. Uh, a lot of these games really target a hardcore player set that uh, has experience in in that genre. So, you know, there's a huge gender gap. It's about 85% men and 15% women. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, in that is that um, uh, most of the women who play play because they were introduced by a romantic partner, whether that's a boyfriend, a husband, 
or whatnot. And so there's this really huge in-game singles balance. So for every one single woman in, in an MMO, there are about 10 single men. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't tell me they're all nerds, though. Uh, I don't think that's one of the they, survey they come from questions. All walks of life. Again, I think there's an interesting <laughs> um, personality compatibility going on. That again, the people who play these games um, tend to probably share other kinds of background interests. And so, one theme that I'm picking up from a lot of the respondents that I that I see is that they'll say, you know, I I met this guy online and he was really cute in real life, but he's just one of these you know shyer, nerdier kids who probably you know has a hard time dating in real life. You know, so that's coming up a lot. But, um, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, again, you know, it's not that they're bad looking as much as they're shy in real life. Okay. <laughs> oh, Nick, thank you so much no for problem. coming on. What would your mother say? Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Good. Take care, Susan. Take Bye. care. That was Nick Yee, Stanford Ph.D. student who is studying online games. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at how to find a mate, what works and what doesn't. Welcome back to What Would Your Mother Say? Coming to you live from the studios of KZSU at Stanford University. I'm Susan Morris. On tonight's show, we're having a roundtable discussion between the mothers and students. Joining me in the studio is Jessica and Brent. And Frances, who has just joined us. Hi, Susan. Also at the table is another mother, Barbara. Hi, Susan. And today's show, you and I are representing that parental viewpoint. If you're just joining us, tonight's topic is connections, how we connect up with each other. And for this segment, we're going to take a look at the very old-fashioned way of connecting up through courtship, what that means, what works, and what doesn't. I'm going to throw out right on the, the, the table manner. You're looking at me. <laughs> well, no. I mean, uh, you know, where where do you start? What do you look for when you see somebody? You know, what are, what's the you know what's the checklist that you go through? And maybe it needs to be revised. I don't know why I put table manners on the top of my um, my list. You're the only one that's attached, Susan. So I think maybe you know something we don't about table manners. <laughs> oh. Ooh. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, maybe you know. That's very important. You know, know, as you raise table manners, it sounds so completely shallow, but I think it's not nothing. I mean, when someone um, is using their fingers all the time or chews with their mouth full or... Talks with their mouth yeah. full. Oh, yeah, chews with their mouth full. Of course they do. Um, it's not nothing. It's bigger than... That's right. You'd think it ought to be. Yeah. I'm, less, I'm less concerned about table manners. What I always use to gauge a person is their behavior at restaurants. And you can say part of that has to do with table manners, you know, and it's whether or not they can adjust their behavior level to match the restaurant you're at. And you can use it at all different levels. You don't want somebody who's going to be really stiff at a really relaxed margarita bar. You don't want someone who's going to be really sloppy at a really, really nice, fancy restaurant. But also what I've always heard and what I like to follow by is you can judge a person based on how much they tip. You, you never want to date a poor tipper because it just shows a basic selfishness. Or marry one. You never want to marry a poor tipper. You always want to date somebody or marry somebody who is, you know, frugality is one thing, but someone who says, you know what, I'm going to be gracious about this and I'm going to tip 18%. Well, let me ask you, do you think that's trainable? Is it trainable? I'm very against training, and I, you know, I don't know if that's right <laughs> or wrong. You can't do it. It's well, it's it more doesn't just work. You should never expect someone to change, and if you're not happy with them the way they are right now, then that's more of your problem than their problem. And you can 
try to get them to change, but I, why would you do that? They are who they are. Well, you know, I, I raised that because I was dating a really fabulous guy, or so I thought. I mean, later married him, but um, <laughs> and he was very successful and a big deal in the community, and we went to a restaurant, and his tip was unspeakably terrible, maybe 10%. And I was just able to draw on the fact that, wait a minute, I used to be a waitress when I was a young mm-hmm. woman, and this matters hugely. The extra $5 you will never miss, but... So, I mean, it wasn't really so much symptomatic of his basic cheesiness <laughs> as the fact that he just didn't know. Well, then I, I would probably agree with that. If it's just a matter of they didn't realize what the situation was, and then they changed because they realized that they were wrong, that's fine. But if if they realize that you have an issue with the way they tip, and they only change because they're like, all right, Barbara's going to get annoyed if I don't tip high this time. That you don't ever want to do because that's not a sincere change. So I, I have a question for you guys because I imagine the things that you would look for in particular are very different than things we would look for kind of on a generational basis. Like are there things like if we would name off like top three, would your t- I'm curious if your top three would be different than our top three. Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I'm guessing, Jessica, our top three are probably pretty different, too. <laughs> that's probably true. So we should check with well, Barbara, we should, yes. We yeah. should do a generation thing. See how well, let's ask the young women first. Uh, is that just because you don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> well, I'm afraid it would be the classic stuff. I mean, I, I would never put table manners at the top of the list. No, although, no. make no mistake, it matters. It matters. I mean, of course, you want that right. sense. Of, you want someone that loves you for who you are. I mean, plain and simple, it really accepts that. But if you're, you're, but I think a, a guy who, who is a bad tipper is also not generous in other ways. Okay, I'll give you my top three. Okay. All right. All right. Brilliant, interesting, and nice. That's top. so well, general. <laughs> exactly. It's like, true, that though. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> no. Brilliant <laughs> is more than just smart. Well, like, brilliant is like oh, sparklingly okay. brilliant. Right. You know yeah. people like that. Well, but I, I like, be more specific than that, though. I mean, because, yeah, he's brilliant, he's this or that, but it's, frankly, it's the little things, like someone who doesn't tip properly or does. Well, and someone tipping who, things. So you guys go out of your way to look at what uh-huh, they're tipping uh-huh, if they pay? Uh-huh. I never do this. I don't understand that. Yeah. I've never done it's, First of all, I like be, cheapness and frugality a lot. Oh, I do, too. And so, so I would love someone who went to a really, really fancy restaurant, ordered like a salad, and then tipped 20%. <laughs> That's my ideal. Wow. Oh, no, at the fancy restaurant, I want him to order big so I can order. Because you're expecting him to pay, and I'm not. Well, Brent, how do you? What do well, you I'd look say, for you when know, you? Well, yeah, that's someone, probably true. If I caught someone trying to look at what I tipped, I'd think that they were trying to micromanage <laughs> and snooping. Yeah, I would think that too. Like, do you like peer away. over their shoulder? No. Like, oh watch I know it's much more okay. subtle than that. But you guys don't know the art of spying on tipping. <laughs> Clearly, I <just> don't <laughs> understand this whole con- like why? <laughs> who cares? Oh. Well, how long do you spend checking things out? Uh, such as the tipping or to see how brilliant they are before <laughs> you say, you know, this is somebody I really, uh, I want to marry this person. Or Well, you should answer that for Yeah, I don't have any season. idea. <laughs> well, no, I, I want to tell you, I met a young woman this past weekend, and she's been dating someone for two months. She really, really likes him. She's 34 years old, and I said, do you want to marry him? And she said, two months? Two yeah. months? Yeah. And I said... How long did you date your husband before you got well, married? Well, I knew him for many years, but we dated... When did you first start dating, though? How long after you had known him? Well, we had our first date when I was about 15, so... And then was there a, a period where you took a break, went off to college, and came well, back we, together? What's, we, what's we, the history? We didn't see each other for about two or three years, and then we were married a year from that point when we got... Did when you, you were keep 19? in touch? No, no, we didn't keep in touch. Okay. When you were 19 or something. So right? in other words, you just dated a year? Yeah, yeah, really. And that included well, your engagement? 
Yeah, yeah. When we, did you get married? How old were you? I was very young. How old, Susan? 21. 21. Yeah, I was 21 See, years that was old. in the days before premarital sex, and you had to really rush yourself <laughs> you had to the altar. Well, as they say, it's premarital if you no don't comment. tend to get married. I mean, <laughs> looking back on that, though, do you think that was the right decision? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it well, clearly worked out for you, but... Well, back in those days, we spent, you know, you started thinking about who you were going to marry much younger. I mean, you know, you didn't say, well, I'm going to get married when I'm 30, so I don't need to consider these things when I'm in my teens. Do you ever wish you had had more time being single? No. No, I don't. Okay. Being single sucks, I just have to say. Well, I thought, I thought <laughs> being Are you single, kidding? I don't like it. I, I love know. it. Well, Brent here just <laughs> yeah. got out of a four-year relationship. Yeah, yeah. four years. So it, Tell us about this. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that happened. I got out of a four-year, four-and-a-half-year relationship in February, and it, it's been great. Like, I feel like I'm uh, free and meeting lots of really cool people. And, I mean, it's what sucks now for me is I'm going to be leaving here in a week. So You wish you had done it longer. Well, I mean, <laughs> sooner. That he'd right, sooner. sooner. Yeah, yeah I mean, and not, not really um, because, you know, things with the previous relationship didn't get bad until the very end. Okay. So, like, but it was like now I'm meeting all these really cool people and now I'm leaving. And so it's all kind there of There are lots worthless. of cool girls in San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> We have a we'll call see. on uh, line one for Mary. Hi, Mary. Hello. What's your question? Well, I would make a comment. I want to share some good advice I got. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, someone told me a long, long time ago that when you're looking for a life partner, you should choose someone you don't mind. <laughs> oh, that so is, cynical. you don't mind yeah. that they have a bossy mother, or you don't mind that they ride a bicycle with a dorky helmet, or you don't mind that they leave their sh- socks on the floor. Rather than looking for someone who has sparkling personality, when you're going there for the long haul, you want to find someone you don't mind. <laughs> that's my that's my word of advice. No, wait. Let me make sure I understand. Is that because you think they're so wonderful that you don't care about those little things, or is it because they do all the little either, things in a way that, that like? Either that, or or you over yeah, you think they're so wonderful, so you overlook them, or they don't bother you in the first place. You know, someone with a low them. agitation factor. Exactly, and, and someone you don't want to change. Exactly. Yeah, I think that you change, got it. Yep, yeah, I think that wanting to change someone is a dead ender. You're not going to succeed. Well, so any, any human being is going to have a long list of things that are potentially annoying. So if you take their list, whatever it is, and you don't mind those things, then you found your right person. That sounds good, <laughs> Mary. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> We, uh, we have to take a short station break, and we'll be right back talking about how to select a mate. Welcome back to What Would Your Mother Say? Coming to you live from the studios of KZSU at Stanford University. I'm Susan Morris. We are talking about how to select a mate and what matters and how to do it. We have some differing opinions here. I wanted to ask you about um, how long you should stay in a relationship. Let's go back to that and see. Um, oh, I was telling you how I was telling this young woman, hey, two months. Um, don't you think you know after two months? No. Well, yeah. I, you could put it one way. I think you know after the first date. I, like, I guarantee you, I think you know as soon as you, you, not just necessarily you meet somebody, but as soon as you start to kind of see somebody in that light, you know after the first date how long it's probably going to last. And you either know that this is a, hey, we like each other, it's going to last as long as it's convenient, or a, hey, this is really something special, it's going to last forever. 
Yes. I, I, mean, I speak from, it's going to last a long time. I speak from zero it. experience with that one. Yeah. Like, I've never met somebody that I was just like, wow, hey, this is going to last forever. Clearly, that's why I'm single right now. But I would say I've definitely met people that I was like, you know what? This is great. This is going to last as long as it does. And then we'll both part ways and it'll be fine. Well, you know, I differ with you on that, I do Francis. too, yeah. Uh, on the first date, you know if you don't want to see him again. Right. I, yeah. All I know is I'd <laughs> like to have a second date. I would never know if I want to do it forever. Yeah. Kind of too much unrevealed. Way with that. Like, I, I mean, there have been lots of people I thought, this person's great and then yeah but i think you're selectively ignoring certain features of it you know like where you're being struck by the whole like you're confusing attraction for romance for for love right but you don't have love on the first date no matter how i mean Mm. even if this is the most perfect person in the whole world you can have a lot of attraction but you don't even know how much they like you like you don't Uh, it's it's that whole honeymoon phase at the beginning of a relationship but what if it's not even a relationship you're so hyped up about the conquest (laughs) Uh, that's what it's all about oh Oh, i think we're getting the male point (laughs) all right more about the conquest You can ride on that adrenaline for a long time (laughs) and convince yourself of anything, but that peters out in a few weeks. Would you say then the best strategy for a girl when when she thinks she's interested in a guy is is playing hard to get, essentially, because if the guy thinks that he can have her whenever he wants her, he's just going to get bored? No, I mean, I think if if they're compatible on a personality level and it continues to work, then that's fine. I mean, but if maybe if the person that you're attracted to, you only just want a sexual relationship, that might not be a bad idea. Do you think there is such a thing as compatibility? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Now, How I, can there not be? Well, yeah. uh, I, I don't think, I mean, I think you have certain, I mean, there's some people you just don't like and you just don't want to do what they do and you don't feel chemi- in the chemistry between yeah. them. I think this compatibility thing is a bunch of malarkey. Why? Uh, well, I think... Um, She's the married one, too. I'm the married, married one. Well, I think... Um, <laughs> Are you and your husband any- compatible? <laughs> well, because I can't Malarkey. Say, no, I can't say that we're not compatible because we enjoy many of the same different th- the same different things. This doing the same things, and we our natures are in many way very similar. But um, I think it's all about compromising and accepting each other. I think that's much more important. Well, I think I think what you're catching on to is a lot of people say we're not compatible as an excuse for he didn't like me, or you know he had another girlfriend, or you know I mean compatibility or is I'm used. Bored, I'm bored. I'm out of here, and right. we're not compatible. Right. I mean, we're not compatible is just a lie most of the time. I mean, it's not that there there is such a thing as compatibility, but it's just a nice thing to say that doesn't blame anyone. So <laughs> it's used to cover all oh, situations. Yeah. Well, see, I'm not so sure about that. I had a date this week that I would call. It just did not go well and i'd like to say incompatible as opposed to one of us was really off and i I just thought we looked at the world too differently everything i said he he saw exactly the opposite way i thought this is too much but that can be so attractive sometimes (laughs) you know no it's i'm serious and that's why it's kind of hard to say oh if you you know if you have similar interests or if you don't have similar interests but it can be i i mean maybe that's just us being different people but i love it when guys disagree with me because then it shows that they have a brain oh i have to say this i think it's fascinating to date sometimes but not to marry i did that in my first marriage married someone hugely different and i thought wow this is just interesting morning noon and night and then it was just hard morning, noon, and night. Yeah. yeah. So I have a I have a question for everyone about how um, for about uh, liking being single. That was a really good thing. Yeah, that, and, and you yeah. didn't, and I did. Yeah. <laughs> I why don't, why I, don't you like being single? I like being bonded to people. I like. Well, being, I'm bonded having, to people. I'm well, and, to my and friends. Commitment, and, and you like the commitment. Yeah, to, I know. like being able to. I like having someone to call, one person to call that knows the story from yesterday, and you call them, and then you know the story. They hear the rest of the story today, and you hear their like ongoing saga. I love that stuff. Well, I do too, and I really enjoy that when it's when it's somebody I care about, but. I 
in general, I just, I feel like I have a much more of a single person mindset where when I wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, it's nice that I only have to worry about me. And that doesn't mean that I don't have tons like of people to worry I love about and care about. You know, me gets kind of boring after a while. <laughs> no, but it's well, just, Well, that's I, your fault. Oh, oh. oh. Brent, on that yeah. note, on that note, I'm going to say our time has run out. Brent, you have to make up for that. We have lots to talk about. And it's about. the last show. I think we're going to be revisiting this subject in the yeah. fall. Jessica and Brent, Francis and Barbara, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much thank for you. having us on the it show. It was fun. I'd also like to thank our guest, Stanford PhD student Nikki, on the subject of online dating. Well, that's it for tonight. Send us an email and let us know what you thought of tonight's show and any suggestions for future topics. We welcome your comments. That's what would your mother say at kzsu.org. Again, that's what would your mother say at kzsu.org. For the record, the opinions expressed on what would your mother say are not necessarily those of KZSU or Stanford University. They're not intended to be a substitute for professional advice and or counseling. Today's show was put together with help from Mark Lawrence and Brent Fayville. Vince Macias engineered the show. I'm the executive producer. Remember, call your mom. I'm Susan Morris for What Would Your Mother Say? <laughs> <laughs>